So thank you all for coming. My name is Logan Yuri. I help lead a team at Google called the Irrational Lab. We're a behavioral economics unit, and we work closely with Professor Dan Ariely, who we're very lucky to have with us today. And Dan Ariely is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke. He founded the Center for Advanced Hindsight there. And he's the author of three New York Times bestsellers, including Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. So we're going to do about 35 minutes of questions between us, and then we'll open it up to the audience, so save your questions. And Dan, I wanted to start off with a really simple question that somebody in the audience gave me beforehand, which is, what do women want? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what do they say they want or what they really want? Um, any other questions? <laughs> we can um, come back to that. So based on your knowledge of human decision making. I'll say, I'll say yeah, one yeah, thing yeah. about this. It, it's, 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 it seems like a booby trap to, to get into this. <laughs> but I will say there's some really nice uh, results uh, showing that what women want in terms of men actually changes through the menstrual cycle. Um, and there are times on, in the month that women uh, crave more men that are metrosexual, mm -hmm. and the time of the month where they create men that look more uh, manly. And you could decide, uh, you, can, you can guess when, when is each of those. So. People in the audience are taking notes yeah. on that. That's great. So based on your knowledge of human decision making, how would you design the perfect date from the initial messages <clears throat> to the days after the date. OK, lot, lots of things to say about, about an optimal date. So uh, the, the first question to ask is, what is the objective of the date? And is the date a, a starting point for something else? Or is this the end of the experience? Mm -hmm. let's, just, let's just assume that we're thinking about long-term relationship, and we're just thinking about uh, the first date of that something that could have a potential long life. One of the things we know is that the ending matters a great deal. Uh, so we've done lots of experiments on this, but the nicest experiment is an experiment on colonoscopy. So, so imagine uh, you give people a colonoscopy. Uh, this is not something people particularly enjoy, right? So that's yeah. not the analogy there. <laughs> but, but you have two types of colonoscopy. And colonoscopy, sorry to give you the details, but colonoscopy, the unpleasant moment is where you go around the curve. Right? Um, so imagine you have a colonoscopy. It takes half an hour. And then for some people, you just leave the probe in their anus for just five more minutes. But you don't make it painful. So, so for some people, you have the experience, unpleasant. And for some people, you have the experience, and the last, last five minutes are just not as bad. Now, it's not a good experience. Nobody says, oh, give me those five minutes. But, but it makes the average of everything else look, uh, go, go higher. Which one of those do you think people prefer? They prefer 30 minutes of an unpleasant experience, or 30 minutes of unpleasant plus five minutes of less unpleasant? They prefer the second one. Now, that's an indication that the end matters a great deal. And the end matters a great deal in all kinds of things. Think about dinner. How do we end a dinner? We end it with a dessert. We end mm -hmm. it with something extra. Um, how would you want to end a vacation? You want to end it on a high note, not getting home and washing everything and, and cleaning or getting stuck in an airport. 
So I think I would start by thinking about the end of the dating uh, experience. So that would be one thing. The second thing is that really sadly, uh, our imagination is often better than reality. Um, so think about something, um, almost everything. What, what is better, the experience itself or how you can imagine it would be? You see, we have a tendency to fill in the gaps. And we, we fill in gaps in over-optimistic terms. Actually, we see this a lot in online dating. People read profiles of people on online dating, and they fill in the gaps. And they say, wow, this person likes music. They must love the kind of music I like. That's fantastic. And then, of course, they meet for coffee and get disappointed. Um, so, so I would say the last moment is incredibly important. And on top of that, leaving something to the imagination would be extra, uh, extra useful. So that's one thing. <coughs> the second thing is how do you get people to have, so, so we talked about the end, right? You want the end to be meaningful, and you want to leave something for the imagination for later. The other thing is the question, how do you actually make the discussions meaningful? So, so we did this in an online dating setup, and, and we got people to, uh, these were MIT students, so it comes with all the qualifications of, anybody here went to MIT? Yeah, so you know the, <laughs> so, you know, but, the material, but anyway, so these were MIT undergrads who were dating on this date site, and we, we just captured the, the text message to each other there. Um, and, and how wonderful do you think their discussions were? How meaningful? They were terrible. They were terrible, right? They were asking things like, what are you majoring in? And, you know, where do you go to school? And how many siblings? Do you, like, now, you could say, you know, that's what they really want to know. What, what really makes a first date interesting is to go over each other's resume and uh, exchange those details. The other possibility is that we actually don't feel comfortable uh, sharing intimate, useful details about ourselves. And what we gravitate toward is the lower common denominator. Uh, so we did another version of this in which we gave people 20 questions. And we told people, look, you can't ask anything you want. You have to pick from those 20 questions. And the other person knew that they could only pick from those 20 questions. Right? So if, if we have a first date, and I start by saying, Logan, what's your uh, most interesting sexual fantasy? A little, a little hard right, to start a discussion like that. <laughs> because it violates some rules about conversations, where you expect people to start by saying, where do you go to school? How many? But, but it's really kind of boring, useless stuff that doesn't promote the relationship in any way. So we gave people a list of questions, and we said, these are the only questions you can ask. And what happened? Everybody benefited more from those, those questions. The people who asked got answers that they cared about. And the people who answered the question, you know, it's really much more interesting than saying, read my resume. So I think there's another question of how do we create a rule for a date that during the date, we, we agree in advance not to exchange meaningless information. How do you set the tone? How do you set the rules uh, for that approach? There's a very um, nice set of uh, questions in psychology where um, you, you, they basically came up with a list of 36 questions, I think, um, where they say these 36 questions help people get to know each other. The questions themselves are not that crucial. What is crucial is what they leave out. 
so, so thinking about the date in terms of saying, how do we make it, how do we make it meaningful? And then the final thing I would say is that, wh what are you really trying to get out of a date? You're trying to get a glimpse of that person. And some of it comes from direct questioning and answering, kind of the interview process. But some of it comes from getting people to interact in the world. Right? Imagine you could go on a date to somebody with an, in an empty room with nothing around. How much would you learn about that person versus if you went together to a concert and there's lots of other people around and vendors and noise and things happen that are unexpected, how much would you be able to learn in a slightly non-mediated, non-clear way? You would actually understand that person in a much better way. So thinking also about what's the environment that could maximize how much we're going to learn about that person is, is important. Thank you. So what about before and after the date? Is there any research that says people should play hard to get? That's a question that my friends ask me all the time. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. Playing hard to get is a good, is a good <laughs> recipe. Um, and so, so you know the term cognitive dissonance, right? Um, so, so the original research on cognitive dissonance uh, looked the following. Uh, Festinger got people uh, to a room, and he said, please screw these bolts for an hour. And people screw these bolts for an hour. Um, and then uh, he said, uh, he paid some people a dollar for this, very low, some people $20, very high. And then he basically tried to get them to recommend this task for other people. Now, if you got $20 for this, what do you say to yourself? This was an unbelievably boring task. I got paid a lot, perfectly fine. What do you say if you, paid a if you got paid a dollar? You say, I got paid a dollar. This was unbelievably boring. Th th those things don't fit. Now, can you change the fact that you got paid a dollar? No, that's a fact. So what do you do? You change your perception of the boringness. This idea of cognitive dissonance is it's uncomfortable for us to live with two ideas that don't fit. So you say, I got paid a dollar. This was boring. I don't like living with this. Dissonance, so let me think about this task as being more interesting. And now I feel more likely to recommend it to other people. <clears throat> so think about it in the same way. You're going on a date, and you work hard for it. What do you say to yourself? You say, this person, I'm working very hard for it, and this person is not worth it. It doesn't work as well. So the moment you work harder for somebody, uh, for something, you can't change that fact, you change your opinion and this person is actually worth more. You have to explain to yourself, why did I try so hard? Why did I try so hard for such a long time? And the only solution you have is to say, this person must be uh, amazing. So you convince yourself uh, that this person is amazing. So this is kind of a justification um, for playing how to get. Now, there's probably a limit, mm -hmm. but, uh, but I think that Making things too easy are not, uh, are not worthwhile. Um, there's another kind of more recent um, research on, on showing effort. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say something about this? Sure. So Michael Norton, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, did some research showing how do people like to see the search results for a travel website. So you would think, I like to see them as quickly as possible. But he actually had a condition in which you saw it instantaneously. You saw it with the progress bar, 
or you saw it with a progress bar that said, we're now searching thousands of websites, including Orbitz and United and American Airlines, and people actually preferred that third one <coughs> because they thought that the, quote, algorithm was working harder for them. So we like when things are harder, but show effort. Yeah, so, so it's not just the hard, but that we understand the effort that goes into it. So when you think about relationship, and you take two people in a relationship and you ask them, from the total 100% of the relationship, how much work do you do and how much work do you do? These num numbers never sum, sum up to less than 100, right? It's always more than, than 100%. And why is it? It's because we see all the details of what we do. Like, I take the trash. My goodness, this is a 17-step process. Takes a really long time, really involved. <laughs> My wife, she pays the bills. That has to be very simple. And, and, and the lesson from this is you really want to be more like kayak in every aspect of your life. You want to come home to your significant other and you want to say, I'm searching United, I'm searching. Here's all the things I've done, I've done for our relationship uh, today. And it's not about lying or exaggerating, but it's really about making the effort that you put in clear to the other person mm -hmm. as well. It also works for roommates, I've recently discovered. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So... Something that I've thought about for a long time is we're now in this age of Tinder. And you go on your phone, and I'm there's seemingly, <laughs> seemingly limit, limitless amount of people. And you think your soulmate is just one swipe away. So with what you know about the paradox of choice, how should we optimize for happiness in this age of Tinder? Yeah, and, and, and it's not just the paradox of choice. It's, it's basically, so. So imagine two principles. The first one is the grass always looks greener, right? So when you, okay, let's take a step back. When you get to know somebody better, what are some of the first things you learn about them? That they disappoint you in all kinds of ways. Right? So, so this, is true, this is true in visual illusion. If you take pictures of people and you blur them out and you make them fuzzy, everybody looks more attractive. As you get into the little details of life, you start seeing wrinkles. And it's true in visual perception. <coughs> and it's also true in life. right? When you look at people in, in general terms, you, you only see the good things in them. This, by the way, is not just about romantic attraction. You know, when companies hire CEOs, and they hire CEOs from outside the company, they often have high expectations from them. But when you look at the results, the results show that they pay way more to external CEOs than internal ones, and they perform worse. But when you look at an external one, it's very easy to say, oh my goodness, this person is just great, because you don't know the little details. Right? So if you, if you look at somebody you don't know very well, all the little annoying habits that they have are just going to be outside of scope for you, and you will just imagine that they all work well. Only when they move in, you get to, to see those, those details. So, so, so imagine a world in which when you look at other people, they look more green or they more look, look more glorious than when you get to know them in all the details. And now you're in bed next to somebody and you wake up in the morning and you say, is this what I want for the rest of my life when I have other options here? And uh, this is the Tinder, right? Your phone is here. Um, and, and you basically, and all of those things, all of those options look so wonderful. By the way, also, um, in online dating or Facebook or whatever it is, people only present their positive sides, right? So you, don't, so you have this biased idea that the outside option, the set of the outside option looks so promising. 
And now <clears throat> you wake up next to somebody, <clears throat> or you have a little fight with somebody, and you think to yourself, in one click, I could have a date with somebody else. Now, imagine that you, that you have an apartment, and you have a deal with the landlord that it, the lease is day to day. And every morning you wake up and you say, do I want to extend this lease or not? And every day your landlord decides if they want to extend that lease or not. How much would you invest in the apartment? Would you paint the walls? Would you get flowers? Would you fix the walls? Would you do all kinds of things? Of course not. Because you're always with one foot outside. And, and I think that that's really the issue. It's not just the, the existence of Tinder, but this idea. So, so the analogy is that you wake up next to your romantic partner every morning, and you say, should we do it for another day, or should we stop now? Um, the moment you think in the short-term horizon, the odds that you will invest in the relationship is much, much lower. Uh, there's actually a beautiful research by uh, Dan Gilbert and Ebert. Um, they got... They got undergrads to take a photography class. And at the end of the two-week photography class, they say, hey, you took lots of pictures. Pick one, and we'll send this one picture to England to be developed. It will be back here in two weeks. That's it. The other group, they said the same thing. But they said, look, we're going to send it to England uh, for two weeks. It will come back. But during those two weeks, you can change your mind. In fact, even when the picture comes back, you can change your mind. OK, so the picture came back after two weeks. Of course, they didn't really send it to England, but it, they came back. And then they say, do you change your mind? Nobody changed their mind. But how much did people like their pictures? The people who committed to the pictures loved them. The picture who were still all the time saying, yes, I know I committed to that picture, but there's all kinds of other pictures. Do I really, should I change my mind and so on? Actually liked them less. So, so the thing that, that worries me is that when we are in a relationship, but continuously with, with one foot out, mm -hmm. and continuously thinking about how the outside world is more tempting and more interesting and so on, um, it's actually not a good recipe for investing in a relationship. And a, and a relationship gets better when you invest. Like, it's not a zero-sum game. It gets better when you invest in it. And if you don't think you're there for a long time, the, the likelihood of investment is just not that high. Yeah. So that's a great segue into something I want to talk about, which is how do you choose who you should settle down with? And maybe you could apply this to the secretary problem. So, so you know, my preference for all of you is to choose randomly. It's kind of the best for experimental. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't been able to do this, uh, this experiment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so you know the secretary problem, right? The secretary problem is a, is a classic problem in, in operation research. And the idea is that um, living without a secretary is tough. These were the days when people had secretaries. But let's say living without an assistant is tough. Um, every day you have lower utility for the day because you have to do more yourself. And you interview people. And you interview people one a day. They just arrive. There's not, you can't interview them all at once. And if you delay the hiring, you suffer because you spend time on hiring and you don't have a secretary in the middle. Uh, but if you choose very early somebody who's not great, you might be missing on somebody great down, down the line. And actually, there's, a, there's an optimal solution for that, right? Because what you really want to do is you want to sample secretaries for a while until you figure out the distribution of quality of people out there in the world. 
And then the moment you hit somebody who passed that threshold, you should adopt them because there's opportunity costs. And, and the big insight from that problem is, is opportunity cost. So what would you rather do? Let's say you're a woman, and you're trying to date a man. And let's say that men uh, are on a uh, one scale between 0 and 10. And one day, you meet somebody who's 8 and a half. Do you say yes, or do you say, let me search for somebody else? And in the secretary problem, the assumption is if you throw somebody out, you can never get them back. Right? And, and you, keep on, you keep on sampling. And what we see happening is that people don't take opportunity cost into account. Right? So what, what you need to think about is how much do you enjoy life in the search process versus how much do you enjoy life when you're dating. Hopefully, the dating one is better than, than without it. Right? But assuming this is the case, there's also a cost for opportunity cost. Delaying this process by three years also has a, <coughs> has a cost. People don't take the cost into account. Um, so you know, there is an equation of how to, <laughs> how to figure it out. I'm not sure people should go um, exactly with this equation. But I do think that we need to be a bit more aware of the opportunity cost mm -hmm. and about the, the almost ongoing misery uh, of, of, for some people of, of being alone and, and how we take mm -hmm. that into account as well. Uh, plus, I think, as I'm, I'm speaking for all men, I think women should just lower their standards a little bit. <laughs> So speaking of lowering standards, <laughs> yes. what's some of the best and worst dating advice that you've ever heard? The best and worst dating advice. Could also be for relationships or marriage. What, one of the, I'm not sure if it's a, a bit of advice. OK, here's an advice. I think ask your mother uh, about the person you're dating um, and, and, your, and your best friends. Um, you, you see, when, when we fall in love with somebody, we're infatuated. It's an amazing feeling. Uh, and, and when we have this amazing feeling, we feel this euphoria and attraction. And we think this person is everything about our lives. And we can't imagine that anything will ever be different. The, the sad reality is that it's a wonderful feeling. It just doesn't last that long. Right? Um, and the question is, when it goes away, uh, what comes in its place? Um, and the problem is that when you're infatuated with somebody, you're really not a good judge of the fact that this feeling will go away. Mm -hmm. right? it, you're sure that you will, you will stay with that feeling. And you're not sure that this person has what it takes to have the long-term uh, aspect. Your mother is probably a better candidate for that. Because your mother actually sees the person without being infatuated. Right? So if you think about what makes long-term compatibility, it's not necessarily something that you can grasp when you're infatuated. Um, there's a very sad result that people actually don't tell their friends what they think about the people that they're dating. Mm. Um, so, so I'll tell you a, a personal story. Uh, I have a friend, and he was dating somebody. Um, and I heard that they broke up. And I, I met him. And I said, oh, I'm so happy you, you broke up with this awful woman. Uh, she's just, just terrible. I Thank God it's over. And he says, uh, we just got engaged. <laughs> <laughs> and there are multiple options, multiple things you could say at a junction like this. And <laughs> my choice was to say, you idiot. <laughs> and I said, haven't you talked to anybody? Haven't you talked to any of your friends? 
Everybody hates her. <laughs> Have you talked to anybody? Well, we, we didn't talk for a long time, but, <laughs> but, but nobody told them. You know, it, it, it's actually a very hard thing to tell your friends that you hate the person that they're dating or that you think they're really a, a, bad, a bad compatibility, but it's kind of your obligation as a friend, right? If you really value your friendship, you kind of have to do it. So I think, A, give more advice to, to your friends. It would be nice to measure how many couples break after uh, <laughs> people. There will be a survey people. for everyone, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then thinking about long-term compatibility, what, what, does that actually, what does that actually mean? Has any of you ever uh, gone canoeing? OK, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of the canoeing test as a test for relationship. Oh, no. Um, did, you, did you go canoeing? <laughs> so, so here's what happens in a canoe. And I'm not talking about canoeing on a lake. We're talking about white water. Like, it doesn't have to be very rough, but some mm -hmm. kind of streaming water. Now, when you're in a canoe, things happen. You hit a rock. You flip over. There's a wave. You get wet. Things happen. And the question is, how much do you blame the other person? There's something called the fundamental attribution error in psychology. The fundamental attribution error is the idea that when bad things happen to us, we think it's because of external events. When bad things happen to other people, we say they're just clumsy. So if I sleep on a, on a you know, banana, it's because you know, somebody forgot, somebody was negligent. If somebody else sleeps, they're just careless. Right? So now, when things happen to us outside of our control, when it's for us, we turn to blame the world. When it's for other people, we turn to blame them. So it's a wonderful opportunity to basically simulate arguments. right? You, you go down canoeing, bad things will happen. It doesn't look like it's your fault. And now the question is, how are you going to negotiate that? Are you going to blame each other? Are you going to be collaborative about it? Are you going to take it in a friendly way? You see, when you, when you usually date, you don't have that many things to argue about. Not many bad things happen to you, right? I mean, if you live in San Francisco, the most you can argue is, you know, the Uber is a little late or you know, something <laughs> tragic like that. But, but, but real life has lots of, lots of terrible things. Uh, you know, lots of terrible, but no, lots of things happen outside of your control. And the real question is, how are you going to, how are you going to manage them? And, and something like a canoeing test is going to be an acceleration uh, for, this, for this process. So is there a kind of a good river around here to, to try? <laughs> yeah. yeah, some Groupon sales for canoes will go up. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to what you said about infatuation. How does that relate to arranged marriage? How does that compare love versus arranged marriage? Yeah, so there's this very uh, kind of sad, kind of interesting result. This is a research in India comparing love marriages and arranged marriages. And of course, it's not a random assignment, right? It's not as if you take two people and say, hey, you're a arranged marriage, you're a love marriage. But they look in general at a duration of the relationship and at happiness. And what they find, unsurprisingly, is which one starts better? The love marriages, right? Love marriages start happy, arranged marriages start, start worse. But what happens over time? Love marriages go down, arranged marriages go up. And they cross in year three. Right? So in year three, they, they switch. And now, there are many reasons for that. Right? So one thing in India, if you live in an arranged marriage, you're not just marrying the particular person you're marrying. You're marrying into a family. Right? So it, but also, you have 
an idea of what your individual roles are. So, so you marry into a family, you have an idea what your roles are, there's a responsibility and, and, and so on. Um, and therefore, things improve over time. Where love marriages are actually very tricky. Um, do, do you know the, um, there's a term, lesbian uh, death? Bed death. Beth death? Yeah. yeah. You go ahead. No, you, you go, you go. <laughs> I think there's a concept that has been no, put no, out there research, yeah. that around year seven of a relationship in a lesbian couple, there isn't a lot of sexual activity, and they call it lesbian bed death. Yeah, and, and it's not so much at year seven, but it, it happens mm-hmm. uh, early. Um, and, and, and the notion, the notion that there's a, there was a paper in, I think, the American uh, Soci- Sociology Review a couple of years ago on this. Um, and, and the notion is that because the relationship are not as defined, uh, and because uh, it's largely about equal relationships that are about f- friendship, mm-hmm. uh, the, the romantic aspect of the relationship uh, don't flourish as much. The, the friendship does, but the other ones uh, don't. And, and that's actually, it's a big mystery, I think, about, you know, we're moving to a different realm, different types of relationship than, you know, we had historically. Um, hopefully we'll get to be as equal as, as possible. Uh, people, you know, there's, there's mm-hmm. more equality, more camaraderie, all kinds of things. How do we, how do we get mm-hmm. that on one hand and don't get the cost of that in terms of passion mm-hmm. and uh, romance or the other. I don't think we have a good answer for that, but yeah. it's a, certainly an issue to, to figure out. So I know you've done some work with Ashley Madison, the infamous site for having an affair. Do you think that's a solution? How, what, what do you think about <laughs> Ashley Madison? So, so I'll, tell you, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what the CEO of Ashley Madison told me when, when I met him. So, so a couple of, the last couple of years we've been doing uh, some research on dishonesty Actually, for many years we've been doing research on dishonesty, but we uh, did a documentary on dishonesty, and uh, Noel Biederman, that was the CEO of Ashley Medicine before this uh, happened, um, was one of the people we interviewed. And he actually had some interesting uh, observations about uh, relationship. And one of the things he said was that if women have problems in the relationship and they want to discuss it with somebody, who do they go to? They're women friends. Uh, what about men? So how many men here have talked about relationship problems with your male best friends? So how many of you do it regularly? It's, it's not fair because very few people would raise their hands when you ask the question like this on camera. But, um, <laughs> but in general, it's much less likely. Women have a, a tight social network when mm-hmm. talking about relationship is, <coughs> is common. Men stereotypically don't do it. You know, we talk about sports, right? But, but talking about relationship actually helps you change your relationship or improve things. Talking about sports doesn't really help <coughs> in, that, in that regard. And what Noel, what Noel said was that when people have an external uh, partner, uh, that's actually an opportunity for men to have discussions uh, about relationship and, and so on. Now, uh, his hypothesis was that it actually, in some cases, helped their relationship. We, we never got to test that hypothesis, but it's an interesting thing to, to think about. And of course, the solution doesn't have to have, be affairs. The solution could be, how do we create support network for men? Given that relationships are more complex, not just for women, but for men as well, how do we create 
social networks for men that, that we can discuss those things and have a um, better aspect. The other thing we learned, so Ashley Madison, you know, men join, it, it, you know the site, right? Uh, the tagline used to be at least, life is short, have an affair. And uh, in every zip code and in every country that they were in, there's a men join and women join. And the question is, what is the ratio between men and women? So let's just talk across countries. What do you think across countries best predict the ratio of men to women? In which type of countries is the number more equal? And in which countries there are more men and fewer women? What does it correlate with? What would you expect? It's a data question. Religion? Religion? No. The practices of, oh, so you think it's about the ratio of men to women in society, so mm -hmm. that there are more men, no, but interesting. What else? Income. S say more. What do you mean by so income? If, the, if, the, if equivalent levels make roughly <coughs> the same, more likely to have equal. That's exactly right. So the income gap, right? They, so, so women, uh, almost everyone around the world get paid less than men for the same job. As this income gap is higher, there are more men and fewer women. And as the income gap is lower, the percentage gets closer. Which suggests that the demand of women for extramarital affair is being held back. I mean, you don't think that when there's a big income gap, all of a sudden the men are just more wonderful, so women want to stay with them longer, right? It's probably the opposite, but it just means that something is holding women back in that regard. Um, it's because of financial insecurity. So are there any regions of the country where you've seen a lot of in, use by particularly men or women? In, so, um, so that was across the world. If we just look at the US, uh, the worst place in terms of the ratio of high men and very few women uh, is a suburb of Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, and, and this is across the US. And, and the reason for that is I think it, it represents probably one of those cases where um, it's a suburb. Uh, women don't have a, a job. They are uh, homemakers, low, low income. Men uh, work in Silicon Valley. They get paid uh, very well. The, the income gap is very high, and that's the, the recipe. Wow. So, so this, we, we had this discussion about dating in San Francisco. How many of you live in San Francisco? OK. Um, so imagine a world in which you have 101 women. It's a math problem. There's 101 women and 100 men. And we do this experiment. And we give everybody $10. And we say, if at the end of the game you have money, you get to keep it as long as you're paired with somebody of the opposite gender. So if you're a man and woman and you're paired up, you each get to keep your money. If you're not paired, the money goes back to me. Okay, that's rule number one. And the second rule is you could buy people. What does that mean? So let's say that Scott and Logan are together and I'm alone. I can say, Logan, you know, I have $10. If I'll give you $1, would you drop Scott and, and join me? And the goal of the game is not to be nice to your partner. The goal is to make money, right? So that's, that's the goal. So <laughs> let's say you switch to me. And then let's say Scott comes and say he'll offer you $2. Now, if you move to Scott, it's not like an engagement ring. You don't get to keep my dollar. It has to go. Um, you get it back to me. So 
At each point, if you switch to somebody, you take what they gave you, but the money you got before you have to return. So now imagine the game. 101 women, in total the women have $1,010. 100 men, in total the men have $1,000. As the game continues, at the end of the game, when nobody is switching anymore, how much money do the men have and how much money do the women have? What do you think? So first of all, who has more money, the men or the women? No. I know from San Francisco, but it seems to me that if you give them enough time to go back and forth, they yeah. will be less mixed last. The men? No. So the result is that, that the men end up with almost all the money. The women end up with $101, and the men end up with everything. Why? So you have 100 men, 101 women. There's one woman alone. What does she do? She goes to a man and says, hey, I'll give you a dollar if you switch to me. The man switch. Now there's another woman who's alone. She goes to another man, another man. Eventually, all the men have $11, and the women have 9 but there's still a woman with no partner. So she continues, and the game continues, the continues, continues, until all the women have $1, because if there's a woman with $2 who's alone, she will give that dollar to somebody else to switch with her. Right? So eventually, and what's so nice about this, so nice, so interesting but depressing, <laughs> think about this game, is that you need a very small asymmetry in the market to create a tremendous asymmetry of power. So think about it. 100 men, 101 women, tiny level of asymmetry. What's the asymmetry in terms of power? Incredible. The men basically have all the, all the power. Now, now think about places like San Francisco. Now, you, San Francisco actually has lots of types of dating markets, right? But if you think about the heterosexual uh, dating, dating market, and you ask what's the ratio of men, men to women, or if, you, if you're not politically correct, you could say, what are the ratio of dateable men, what's the, what's the expression, um, to women? And if that ratio is such that there are fewer men, then the power relationship changes dramatically. Wow. That's a little depressing. Well, yeah, it sounds like from your <laughs> advice, we shouldn't live in San Francisco or a suburb of Silicon Valley. <laughs> we should all go canoeing with our partners. Uh, we should have arranged marriages. And we Suburb, should... By the way, suburbs is okay. As long as you don't want to stay. You, you want to have an equal income. So okay. it's okay to so work. So equal in... income wherever you live. And that we should opt for the 35-minute colonoscopies. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, let's open it up to questions. And Scott's going to take the mic. In the experiment you described, uh, 100 women, uh, 101 women and 100 men, this goes with the assumption there is perfect knowledge of the system. Yes. Right? How does it work in imperfect knowledge systems, which is the most real-world case, real case? Yeah. So, so when we run this experiment, by the way, I, I usually run it with my students on Valentine Day. So I take, oh. <clears throat> I take my students, and usually there's more than, uh, more than this number, and there's, there's never equal number, and, and it takes a little bit of time, but the market sorts itself. But of course, at any point in time, you know if you're alone, and you see who else is there. And you, as, the moment you're alone, you, you, you ask to break people up. And also, in the real market, not everybody wants to break up. Um, so every time you have friction, this effect will go down. Right? So if, you have, <coughs> if we have loyalty, 
If somebody pairs up with somebody, and even if they could have somebody better, they don't want to switch, this creates friction in the system. So every time there's friction for either reasons of loyalty or lack of information and so on, the effect will be less. But it doesn't mean it will go away. Right? It will just be a smaller effect. When I think of being predictably irrational in the context of relationships, I immediately think of men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And you know, a lot of these paradigmatic problems of why we argue with each other is because we're each trying to give the other person the type of love and affection that we need, and we don't understand where they're coming from, and we misinterpret what they're saying. I'm just curious if you have any comments about that general area. Like, I don't know how much of those pieces of advice have actually been you know, put into practice, or if they're sort of underlying psychological mechanisms that explain them more, or because that still seems like something that is underappreciated in relationships. Yeah, and I, I think the research on that is, has not been that great. Um, but, but we know, for example, that people fight a lot about money. And fighting about money is fighting about priorities in life. Um, and some of those fights, uh, pe people don't really understand what they're fighting about, right? They're not understanding that this pair of shoes is not really about the shoes, or that this beer is not about... Uh, this beer. So how do you give people some freedom and some control and some joint uh, goals is something we don't know. I'm actually very hopeful that w we need some technological solutions for that. Right? So, so people are going to be different. And there's a question of what is the best way for couples to manage their money, for example, in a way that gives them some individual freedom without getting upset with the other person, but also some communality in terms of their goals. And I think there's all kind of interesting ways to think about how would we design joint checking account and separate accounts and how much would we put in each of those if we wanted people to at least not fight about money. So I think we have to recognize mm -hmm. that there are going to be fights about all kinds of things. Um, and and we, I'm not sure we can always explain every fight what it is about, but how do we prevent, how do we prevent those? Um, one of the nicest differences that we know about between uh, men and women is actually in dating, not in, in relationship. <coughs> so you all know what speed dating is about. Um, let's say there are 10 men and 10 women, and they each talk to each other for, they talk to one person for five minutes, then we ring a bell, all the men switch, they talk to another person, another bell, they switch. Um, and at the end, they give you a list, and they say from the 10 people I met, these are the four or five I want to, to meet for a second date. So imagine two speed dating events. One has 10 men and 10 women, and the other one has 20 men and 20 women. Now, what happens to the number of people you say yes to? What happens to the number of people you say, I want to meet them again? Now, you can have two models. You can have a model that say, I'm going to pick the top three, or the top X. And if, if you have that model, it wouldn't change whether you meet 10 people or 20 people, because you just pick the top X. Or you could say, I have a threshold. I'm going to pick everybody who is above 8. I don't know what, you know. Um, and then, of course, if you pick above 8, when you move from 10 to 20, there'll be twice as many on expectation, people who pass the threshold. So what do you think happens when people move from a small speed dating event to a large one? Do they pick, do they have the, let's call it the budget approach, where they have a top X? Or do they have the threshold approach which says everybody above eight? Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle? They probably say yes to more people, but not on a one-to-one -one ratio. Okay. Yes. I mean, 
So, so every time you listen to a talk, think about the question before. You just asked me about gender differences, right? So, so you know, there's a gender difference here as well. So men and women are very different. Women basically behave as if they have a budget. So when the group becomes larger, women just become more critical or you know, more restrictive. They just say yes to, like, their the, the threshold go up. And men say yes to the same, they have a threshold. Everybody over eight, so their number basically doubles. So this is actually one of the uh, biggest differences we, we've documented in dating. Sorry. So uh, going off of that point, I have a question about uh, the new Tinder world that we're all living in. So I think I totally agree with what you said earlier about how the mentality with having Tinder and Hinge as an option, whether or not you're on those apps, it's just grass is always greener, one foot in, one foot out. I think one argument for using the apps is that it's more exposure to more people, right? So I'm not going to meet as many people in a bar as I would if I decide to swipe on Hinge. But I think what you just said about how does it just make women so much more critical if you're given so many more options? So do you think that in the context of, of Hinge or Tinder, it's better to be given more exposure to more people so that your chances are technically higher? Or are you just infinitely more critical that it's not going to have a positive outcome either way? <laughs> yeah. So, so what is the percentage of men uh, that you see on uh, Hinge or Tinder that you're uh, proposing to them to go for coffee? Me personally? Yeah. It's very minimal. No, no. What, what is it? <laughs> are, are, we talking, are, we talking, are we talking 10%, 1%, a fraction? 2%. Two percent. So, so two. And I'm not even asking. I will say yes if they ask. You what? <laughs> Maybe I will agree, but I'm probably not one to proactively reach out. So, so, so let, let's say you, you meet, you see a thousand people on Tinder, mm-hmm. which is probably like thirty minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> How many of those do you think of a thousand? You say yes to twenty. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Maybe more, but yes. Let's say fifty out of a thousand. So, so that's half a percent. Okay, so l- listen, so, so there's, there's uh, you know, how, how many do we? The fact is that in online dating, I haven't seen the results from Tinder, but in online dating, people reject most people. When you go to speed dating, people say yes to more than 20% of the people they meet. Hmm. It's kind of shocking. 20%, we're not, I mean, you're talking two, you're talking half. Why is it part of the problem is that in these apps, we don't describe people in a way that tells us anything about how to consume them. You know, I'm not, but in general, like what, what does it mean to be with that person? Imagine that the way we describe food in restaurants is describing them by their ingredients. You have this grams of protein and this uh, number of uh, vitamin D and, you know, and, how much will that give you any sense about what the food is like? Zero. Right? So now I think about online dating. We describe to you people by their height and weight and religion and, and so on. In what way is it giving you any insight about what this person would be like to go on a canoeing trip with? <laughs> Not that much. So what happened is you're very risk averse because you, the description of the product is so mediocre. Mm. So you change your, your threshold. So, so in the spirit of kind of giving people the sense that it, all that matters is the picture, I think we're misclassifying lots of people. And you know, we have the, the Indian experiment, but 
How many of you um, went to college in the US? Okay. How many of you became really good friends with some of the people that you uh, shared the room with? Now, think about it. This is the American version of, of arranged marriages, mm. right? Nobody, nobody said, oh, let's go through a six-month dating and then put you in a room with somebody. It's kind of a random process. You know? Maybe they look at a few characteristics. But lots of people report that they got into a room with somebody and eventually ended up loving that person. Now, if you met this person, would you predict it? Not so much. Here's an experiment we did. Uh, or imagine we do it to you. Imagine I ask you for a list of 20 of your best friends and 20 people you like so-so. And then I put them, these 40 people, I ask them to fill up their online dating platform on whatever, uh, match.com. And then I give those 40 to you without the picture, so you don't know exactly who it is. You don't know the name. And then I say, hey, we have people here that we think you like and we have people that you, we think you will not like so much. How, how well do you think you'll be able to sort them out? It's terrible. It's basically random. Think about your best friends. What is it about your best... If they were online dating and you would look at their profile, what would it be about them? You say, oh my goodness, I want to be a friend with this person for 20 years. It, it's their height, eye color, <laughs> BMI. I mean, what... You know, it's, it's kind of crazy. And, this is actually, I think, a good point to think about at, at Google. Um, why do we describe people this way in online dating? Because it's easy. It's meaningless from the perspective of predicting who you would actually like or don't like, but it's easy to do and it's easy to search on. But just because it's easy to do and easy to search on doesn't mean it's the right mechanism. So I think we have this, like, we, we have this look. I want people to find love. It's, it's a wonderful thing, right? We should promote that. But the companies who are doing it, I think, are taking tremendous shortcuts. They're trying to do things that are easy rather than effective. And it's, it's, it's a real shame. So what question would you ask that you think would actually be predictive? <clears throat> so, so I think, you know, the, the, um, <clears throat> I would not ask questions, actually. Mm. Um, so, so let's think about online dating. What is, the, what is the, the process of this? Is the process screening? Here are all the people I don't like. I think that's, that's OK. I mean, I think you could basically say, here are the people I, I would never like. And I don't think we even need to show them to you to know that you don't like them. Um, so we did a study in which we said, look, dating is a very special thing. Dating is actually going through a shared experience. And through this shared experience, you get to do something. So we did a speed dating event in an old people home. Uh, this was not for uh, you know, sexual activity necessarily, but you know, we wanted people to meet each other. They just moved to an old people home. And the first time we did it was a bust. They were just sitting there. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? <clears throat> and then we asked them to bring a meaningful object from their life. And the discussions were amazing. And people kind of got engaged and shared experience and so on. So if I was doing speed dating, uh, uh, online dating, I would say I want to do something where people will share an experience in a quick and efficient way so they don't have to travel a long distance and so on. But they will give them a sense of what the other person is like. So would it be solving a puzzle together? 
or would it be listening to music together? I mean, it could be all kinds of things, but I think that's the um, facing moral dilemmas of uh, you know what what you do. I think all of those things would be would be more effective um, than something like this. Um, so I think I think we're kind of confusing two things. There's the sorting mechanism that says there are too many people. Let me just kind of focus on the group I care about. But when you say the group you care about, it's probably a large group. You shouldn't sort it too much because you miss some really wonderful people. Um, and then we need a different procedure. Um, there was a, I had an idea once. Um, how many people here <laughs> think that you're not that good in making first impression? OK, quite a few of us. Um, online dating right now is really built for people who could go to and pick up people in a bar. Right? It's not very different. Imagine that you had a, a dating website only for people who don't do well on first impression. <laughs> and you had a different procedure. And you say, you know what? Let's agree that meeting somebody for coffee for 15 minutes is not really the solution. Let's agree that we'll meet for three times over three weeks. We'll not come up to judgment too early. And let's try to create something where let's people actually, you know, the experience, I'm, I'm not recommending the dorm experience where you locked with somebody for a semester. But, but let's make something where you actually are committed to finding out something about some, somebody for, for a while, rather than having these quick judgments, which I, I think are awful, not so good. So you mentioned the uh, Ashley Madison uh, episode. And I read an article after that came out that like 90% of the female accounts were actually faked. Um, and they were basically just employees of the company that were talking to men as a, I mean, it fits with your thesis of, of conversation. But uh, I'm wondering if, do, do you think the trend still holds, or is it just that they were making all these, all these female accounts existed in rich countries because that's where the employees made them? So, so, so you know, we looked only at active accounts, rather accounts, uh, and we had, we had data so we could separate this. Our also estimation of uh, how many accounts were fake was very different than what other people had, but we looked at active, active accounts that I don't think people, people made up. Uh, we also had geographic variation, right? So we, we could tell you by zip code. So we can tell you that you know, Palo Alto is different than Los Gatos and you know, things like that. Hi, I was just looking to know if there's any insights in, um, in relationship differences between like, regions where like more tropical weather, where we have like, more bot exposure, and um, in places where colder weather, we have less bot exposure because like, there's less kind of filling the gaps, living to the imagination, at least in a, in a, like, in a physical uh, perspective. Yeah, so, so the site that leaves the least amount of room for imagination uh, is called Manhunt. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, been on that, on that site, but uh, it's really an amazing, it's an amazing site. So when, um, <laughs> when, when, when we did this, uh, this, this, we did some work. So you know what's, what's called labor analysis? Uh, labor analysis is an analysis in which I take all your individual characteristics, your height, your weight, your education, uh, all kinds of things, and I regress it on your salary. And this is the kind of research you do to find out what is the income gap, right? That men f make more money for the same job, holding everything else equal. So we did the same analysis for online dating. We said, let's look at you and all your characteristics, and let's find what makes you attractive in online dating. And one of the things we found was that women really care about men's what? Height. <clears throat> Actually, tremendously so. 
So I'm 5'9". If I wanted to be as successful as somebody who's 5'10 in online dating, how much more money would I have to make a year? <laughs> what, what do you guess? 10,000. It's about 40. It's about 40. <clears throat> now, now, just to be clear, you can ask, like, are women really that superficial? Um, and the answer is kind of yes and no. Uh, partially, the website, of course, get women to search on heights. So if you search and you say, I want somebody who's 5'10", you'll never see somebody who's a real sweetheart but 5'9", right? So, so sometimes search actually can take something that people have as a bias or as a tendency and exaggerate it. Um, but anyway, women care a lot about height. By the way, men care a lot about BMI. And how much would a woman with a BMI of 20, let's say 21, how much more would she have to make to be as attractive as a woman who has a BMI of 20? We can't estimate it because men don't care how much money women, <laughs> women make. Anyway, so this guy called me up from Manhunt, and he said, look, the, 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 the online dating market on Match or whatever it is confuses two things. There's a, some people who are there for the long term and some people there for the short term. And he said, let's, let's look at the website that just focuses on the short term. Uh, so he gave me his, his password for, for Manhunt. And, and it's, an amazing, it's an amazing website because they basically don't even show a picture of the whole body. There's ba it's kind of... So there are cultural differences about what's... Uh, what part you show, and I think it has to do, but I actually think it's complex because um, it, it also shows something about what kind of relationship you want, long term, short term, uh, other things like that as well. That's a good note to end on. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you all for coming, and thank you, Dan. Thank you.